week, Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes. I love to dig behind the headlines. Elon Musk begs to differ. The dip kept dipping. You also don't want to panic by because it's a discounted stock. Some of these flashy companies, you kind of need to have a crystal ball. Fueled by a lot of cheap debts, not just an inflation story. An enormous amount of stimulus that's been pumped into the economy. A lot of them are down 20, 30%. People tend to rethink what they're willing to pay. The growth stocks have been valued down by the market. Don't panic. You can't fight the market. The most successful investors invest for the long term. It's only when the tide's going out that you can see who's been swimming naked. It's the 19th of May today, and I don't know if you've checked your portfolio, which I don't recommend doing regularly, but especially in times of volatility, but it's a sea of red. If you only started investing in 2020 and you remember people saying past performance isn't indicative of future performance, it feels a little bit on the nose to see the value of your investments trend down, given the last two years have been a slush fund of seemingly only upward mobility in the stock, crypto and even Australian property market. But the party seems to have stopped. This week, with all the madness happening in the markets, we wanted to get the expert in. Not the companies or ETF holders, but the researchers, the analysts, to dig under the hood of the global markets and discuss why everything that was big is now just swinging. Join me in welcoming today, Justin Walsh, Associate Director and Manager of Research at Morningstar. Welcome to Big Swinging Stocks, Justin. Thanks very much for having me, Alex. I'm so excited to have you in because I'm a bit of a research nerd and I'm a big fan of the really black letter research you guys put out on the markets. And so there's just, I love to dig behind the headlines, which I think have just been wall-to-wall coverage around inflation and supply chains and China and quite sort of grim doomsday discussions around the stock market. And I think what's really interesting is that there hasn't been a lot of chatter about why is it that those three seemingly uh, like events happening elsewhere in the world have had a really profound impact on tech stocks in particular. Why is that? Well, speaking very broadly, what we have been in until probably about November, December last year is a growth environment fueled by low inflation, or was low inflation, particularly (laughs) low interest rates, and a very benign uh, global market situation fueled by a lot of cheap debt provided by governments, the so-called quantitative easing. So there was a flood of capital looking for a home. What has happened since then is a number of factors. Number one, there's been inflation in the system. Some of that has been caused by supply chains that have become clogged. Um, we, you would have heard of things like there's a shortage of semiconductors. So now to get your new Toyota RAV4 takes 12 months. Instead of being able to rock up to the dealer and have one there ready for you to drive away, you've got to wait 12 months for it. And you often have to pay full price. So what we've found is that there's been a lot of heat that has been in the economy that has gradually come to a head, as these things often are. What happens is they're often hidden, but when they become exposed, as we found with inflation, the effect can be dramatic. So what, are we, what we're starting to see is rising interest rates, 
which means that people start having an evaluation about how much they're going to pay for assets and how much growth they think there might be in the system overall. So what we've had is a really, 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 really strange situation. We've had two months, two years, I should say. Certainly hasn't felt like two months. (laughs) Two years of a pandemic and we've had a a lot of structural issues that have come into the global economy. We add that to a war in Ukraine with a Russian invasion. We we add to it as well lockdowns in China as they try and control their way, you know, the whole COVID issue. So what we have is a whole cascading of effects uh, that have really started to come to a head. And the reaction to all that has been that we have significant inflation in the system. Now, you'd have to go back a long, long way to the 1970s to see such high inflation. And that has spooked a lot of investors because the question is, how transient is this inflation? Is it going to become embedded or is it short term? And it's very unclear what the the real answer is that. And that's something that we'll probably only know in hindsight. There's plenty of views. And so is it is it that uh, lack of clarity really around inflation? Because obviously that would be one of the factors that people use when they're pricing or valuing stocks. And it's not just the stock based on today. It's sort of a longer term view. So once we do see potentially inflation level out, is that potentially when we'll see the market start to maybe level out as well? Potentially, yes. I mean, I think it's not just an inflation story. There's also rising commodities. We've had a structural decline in uh, investment in energy overall. And what has happened uh, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine is that all of a sudden we have a lot of Europe, particularly Germany, scrambling to see if they can get alternate gas supplies. And that has meant that um, we've had pressure on commodity prices such as oil, et cetera, and gas. So that becomes embedded in the system. Uh, Borrell came out with a profit warning uh, recently and noting that higher energy prices have had a material effect uh, on their expected profits. So what we see is, is that what can be an isolated in- incident, Ukraine's a long way away, having cascading effects that start having a build-up in not just the European or the US economy, but indeed ours as well. Mm. You begin to realise, I think, how interwoven this is all. This all is. You know, technology stocks feel far removed from the price of oil, but when you factor in, it goes into transport, it goes into build. It suddenly starts to feel. It all starts to feel very connected. Somewhat frighteningly, actually, how fragile the system can be. Yes, and I think the other thing that's fueled it as well is is that there's been an enormous amount of stimulus that's been pumped into the economy globally. So that has meant that there's been a huge amount of spending and there's, that has resulted in strains on the whole system and how it's working. Um, so what you find is it is inconnect, interconnected and it takes time sometimes for issues to work, its, to work their way through the system. I mean, there was no doubt that there was well, quite a lot of froth in terms of technology valuations, uh, infotech, et cetera. Some major companies, Meta been a notable one, Netflix been another one as well, have come out with uh, disappointing results and investors have reacted somewhat savagely to those results and that their concerns have spread across 
uh, the sector overall. So if you look at the technology names, a lot of them are down 20, 30%, sometimes more. So that tends to spread across a wider path of markets. Um, what we are seeing though, it's not all, it's, it's, it's not all red. For a long time, value and value investors have had a very hard time in the sorts of stocks that they tend to like, have been underperforming. And what, sorry, just so, for anyone that's confused, because I think you mentioned it hasn't been since the 1970s that we've had these types of increasing inflationary environment, you know, sort of rapidly increasing inflationary environment. What is a value stock as opposed to a growth stock? Yeah, look, a value stock will tend to be a stock that tends to trade on lower P multiples. So the price to earnings that a company earns, they tend to have lower multiples. They tend to have a regular business. They tend to have predictable cash flows. Uh, not as exciting in many ways. As well, within the value sector, you can tend to find material stocks and energy. So a lot of the growth, not all, but a lot of the growth-orientated uh, investors don't tend to buy material stocks. They don't tend to buy energy stocks as well. So they tend to buy you know, healthcare, infotech, mm. some of the higher consumer discretionary stocks, et cetera, and they tend to have loftier PE multiples. So what we've found is that in a rising interest rate and a rising inflation rate environment, people tend to rethink what they're willing to pay for future earnings. So that has led to a little bit of a, a turnaround in the growth value cycle, such that the growth stocks have been basically valued down by the market and the value stocks, particularly those within the commodity uh, part of the economy, have been attracting more attention. Having their time in the sun. Indeed, with rising commodity prices, what we've found is that there is, uh, shall we say, some quite a bit of enthusiasm for them and that's mm-hmm. been reflected. And in my part of the market that we look after in terms of funds, uh, we've certainly noticed a pronounced turnaround of some managers that had been underperforming for quite some time uh, are actually coming to the top of the league tables on a shorter-term basis. Mm. And some of the uh, more bullish managers that might be buying Tesla and other um, technology stocks, et cetera, and those that you know, are, are built, you know, what they would say, for, uh, for the future, becoming uh, marked down quite significantly. Yeah, and I think you made a really good point about this being the first time in a really long time that we've experienced it's not it's not just the market's volatile it's i feel i feel as a new-ish investor i started probably investing 5 6 years ago uh the sentiment has changed the confidence has changed as well what i think is really interesting is for any new investors especially those that started investing in 2020 this feels like a real shift an emotional gut punch, you might say, for someone that is seeing their stocks go down for the first time. It can be really intimidating. But for a lot of them, they probably have decades to invest, but the market has shifted. So I, I wonder if we could talk generically. You know, we haven't had these conditions since 1970. It's the first time for a lot of investors they're experiencing this kind of market cycle. What do they do? Well, I think the first thing to do is don't panic. Which is really important because you're right. As soon as you see some red, it's a very human reaction. It's fight or flight. So you can't really fight the market in many ways. So you tend to flee. Elon Musk begs to differ, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a different. Yes. Well, we might park that uh, for the yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what we always emphasize to clients is you should always have a long term plan. 
is the first one. So you're not inve- – well, the best way to invest uh, and the most successful investors invest for the long term. As we all know that um, Warren Buffett has the fantastic quote, which is used all over the place. He said, it's only when the tide's going out that you can see who's been swimming naked. Not the best of analogy from a 90-odd-year-old, but um, what that really means is that when there's a lot of froth in the market, it covers lots of things. When the tide goes out and things get more scary, um, then that's when we see business models that aren't really quite, you know, built for the long term. We see investment strategies that are, you know, don't really have a lot of depth to them. And we see investors who aren't really committed to a long-term investment approach and uh, and have been trading much more short-term uh, in their outlook. And when the um, when things change, and they can change very quickly as we've seen, uh, that's when people are caught out. But I would, I would always also get people to think of the other famous quote from Baron... Um, Rothschild, who is well known for saying that uh, the time to start buying is when there's blood in the streets. So I don't know if we quite reached blood in the streets. I haven't heard that, but I have heard wall to wall on the internet, buy the dip. And I saw an absolutely hilarious response to that, which was someone with uh, empty pockets saying, the dip kept dipping and I have nothing else to spend. And I think that can be a challenge, you know, buy the dip is funny when it's a short-term volatility, but we've, it does feel like we're moving into at least a prolonged period. Um, and I think to your point around panic, you also don't want to panic buy because it's a discounted stock. That doesn't still necessarily mean that, you know, the index you're buying or the stock you're buying is a quality buy simply because it's on sale, because everything's on sale at the moment. Look, that is so true. Our, our view is, and it's, it's a boring view in many ways, but it's a view that we have for long-term investment is buy, you know, if you're going to buy ETFs, buy well-diversified ETFs for the long term. And you will have volatility. There will be times that you will be negative. Uh, the measurement of, six, of return success is very, you know, start and end point determinate. So you can take very benign times when it looks like uh, – Investments look fantastic. You can take other times where they look like a disaster. But the real lesson, there's two real lessons, I think, is one is diversification works. Uh, it's been referred to as the only free lunch that's available. And the other thing is that if you're going to invest, invest for the long term. Stocks held for the long term will outperform most other options that you've got and provide you liquidity that means you can sell if you need to, if there's something other competing that you need. The issue is stocks get valued from 10 to 4 every working day. So for some people can calculate whether they're winning or losing at a moment in time. And the issue is you can get caught up in that in that constant cycle of my head, am I behind? Am I head? Am I behind? And really you've got to ask yourself why are you investing and we would we would suggest that if you're going to invest you need to invest for years not for days or weeks yeah and, and absolutely and more than just a year or two years i think a lot of investors should be looking at their product disclosure statements because i remember when i first started investing i remember reading that the minimum recommended investment time frame and this is not all etfs but most of them 
we'll say five to seven years. That's a lot longer than a lot of us, you know, if we're looking at your portfolio six times a day, that's not the kind of time frame you should be considering. But I love that you bring up diversification as a risk because I think investors are becoming a little bit comfortable with that idea as I'll diversify as a means of mitigating my risk. What I don't think is talked about as much, or perhaps, you know, I think industry exposure is becoming a little bit more common around investors, especially because we're all feeling it if we were heavily exposed to tech. Another key risk that I think is coming to the fore is key personnel risk, especially with these some of these flashy companies where I think some valuations are priced on the CEO, chief executive, the investment team. Um, How can investors manage key personnel risk or how do you actually mitigate for that? Well, the trouble is you'll always have certain um, key personal risk for each individual company that you buy. Um, So the best way to mitigate that is buy a basket. Mm. So the best basket is an index ETF, which might buy you two or 300 of these companies overall. And some will be, you know, frankly, dogs and some will be stars. But over time, the way an index works is the stars become a greater percentage of it and the dogs become a lesser percentage of it. The issue is that if you're only going to buy a handful of direct stocks is that you have a very concentrated risk in those companies. Now, a lot of people are happy with that risk and are willing to take that risk. But you need, I would suggest, do a lot of work to make sure that you understand what you're buying and understand the specific personnel and industry risks of any stock that you buy. And, and some people are happy happy to do that and they have expertise to do that. But I don't think a lot of people have the expertise to do that. And um, if they want a safer way to, to, to invest – but certainly not a risk-free free way to invest, but a, but a safer way to invest is to invest via uh, a well-diversified ETF, I, w- I would suggest, or a managed fund. Uh, that would be a suggestion that I would have, and it all depends on your, your personal circumstances. I mean, one of the great things we do have in, in this country is compulsory super. You're forced to save for your retirement. Now, I don't want to get into the policy or the political implications of that. But the good thing about that is is that you have to invest. Now, the challenge about that is is that I think it's incumbent for people to learn about investing um, so they can make good decisions about their future. Could not agree more, Dustin. You know, people want to make decisions, but do they really understand the impact of some of those decisions? Yeah. And I think the indexes, ETF investing generally, it's important that we know that it's not risk-free, nothing, there's no guarantees in life generally. But another one of the aspects of ETF investing that I think isn't as well understood, and you touched on it just before, was bigger companies, unless you have an equally weighted ETF where everything takes up an equal percentage, most indexes will have a greater proportion of stocks with larger market caps. So good example is the ASX 200. If you've ever heard someone say, oh, well, that's heavily exposed at financials, that's true. 
because the banks make up have quite enormous market capitalizations. And so they do. Even if you own those 200 companies, you'll actually own different slices of them in different proportions. So I want to talk about industry for a second because my amateurish um, thought was high interest or increasing interest rate environment would be an absolute bonanza for banks. If they're making more profit on mortgages, they generally are very quick to inf- like pass on the cash rate when the RBA announces it. I think my bank took literally a week, which was so kind of them, seven whole days of a holiday. And yet, when I was looking at the Morningstar research about which industries have actually performed well now that they're starting to price in interest rate rises, financials were trading flat. And I'm curious for your thoughts on that. Which industries perform well in these environments and, and why? Yeah, look, that's a, that's a good question. Um, look, there's a couple of industries that would, you know, those that aren't as interest rate sensitive overall. So if the issue with the banks is, yes, you'd hope or they, they would hope that as interest rate rises that they get a better spread between what they can charge people for mortgages and then what they have to pay them for deposits. Uh, because if they don't have enough deposits, they need to go to external markets to raise cash to fund these mortgages. Um, the only problem is if you've got inter- rising interest rates, you've got potential problems with people who can't pay their mortgages. So provisioning may need to increase as well. So the risk of those credit goes up. Yeah. Have they done sufficient credit assessment uh, on that one? And that's a, that, that's a big part of what APRA does uh, is the um, – really assessing to the banks have good uh, credit practices and are they happy with the risk management processes they have in place uh, because banks are highly leveraged. You know, ultimately they might, you know, have a loan book 10 times, 12 times what their capital is. So that's that's a really important consideration to have for that. But the sort of companies um, would be those that don't, aren't as um, – you know, where interest rates is not such a big component to what they do, where it might be they have low debt or they have, you know, fit more into the quality space. So healthcare is often one that is uh, cited as having high quality uh, earning streams. Uh, technology often can be the same. Um, they can have, they can have um, the technology companies can often as well have earnings that aren't affected by interest rates to the same degree that some of the consumer stocks will be like. And also you've got some of your core discretionary ones, um, you know, things like your Coles and Woolies, everyone's got to do a weekly shop. Absolutely. And that te- doesn't tend to change. But what can change is basket competition on that as well. Mm, people swapping uh, but, out. You know, there, there, there's some of the point is of, of what you can have is where there's leverage in the market, they can do poorly. But also rising interest rates actually means we're getting towards, you know, the end of a growth cycle usually in the economy and that means things have done well overall. So, you know, we could often see that commodity prices might rise as well. So things don't tend to work in isolation. A lot of it's interlinked. Mm. Um Across that we've got, I mean, what will be what what will be interesting is to see whether we're going to get a number of interest rate rises or a few, and that's also going to have an impact as well. Because what you could find is, is a lot of people in our situation got mortgages, 
mortgages, if they're not on a fixed rate, uh, will rise as interest rate rises. And that means if household budgets need a change, that means discretionary and consumer spending will change. And that might have an impact in some of the discretionary part of the market as well, where people might want to go out more often, they might have to cut that back. That means there's less income flowing through the economy on discretionary. Oh, even renters. I mean, yeah, landlords will be passing on those costs as well. Interesting though, I I see all this from the lens of like watching new investors, you know, basically unfold their sophistication because they're learning as well as the market changes. One of the interesting things I've seen is broad-based index funds, sort of whole of market index funds like ASX 200 tracking or S&P 500 tracking have grown in popularity, but there has been an absolute surge in thematic investing and thematic ETFs. I mean, I see a new thematic ETF launching bi-weekly and my inbox is wall to wall. (laughs) And then do you want to invest in food or crypto? I'm really curious for your view. Obviously, Morningstar and your division in particular focuses on passive and active funds. Do you think thematic investing in particular is likely to have the longevity and the long-term value for investors? Oh, look, that's a that's a really good question. You know, thematic investment is definitely here to stay. The issue with it is that the underlying trends that fall into this bucket changes. It's a bit like fast fashion. Mm. Zara can come out with a dress one day. Everyone's going to have it. It's the it dress of the summer. Not that I know a lot about women's fashion, so you know I wouldn't want to quote more than that. But by the time you know we hit the next summer, it's gone. No one wants to wear it. You daggy. You know we see it in trends. You know fashion. I think is a really great way to, to illustrate this. We see trends. You know flares were in for a while, and then they were out. Having all the cool uh, people wear their pants halfway down was really cool for a while, and people thought, "No, that does look ridiculous. We're not going to have that." Uh, having loose-fitting clothing, you go back and watch some of those music film clips from the nineties. Now everyone's wearing tighter clothes. You know, all these things change, and I think that is a way to think about some of these um, thematic funds. They're trying to capture a particular trend. You only would release a fund if you think you're going to get money. Okay, that's that, that that that's a motivation, and we're seeing a lot of this in relation to climate. We're seeing a lot of it in relationship to you know particular trends that you can pick up. Some have been longer term, so some of the index providers have long had momentum, value, growth orientated funds, and they they're long term stories that come in and out of fashion. But some of the others trying to pick clean technologies and some of these other things, it's very new. And some of the companies that make up these indices are really unproven and don't have a long-term business model and may not actually have a long-term solution for whatever they're trying to solve for. So what that can mean is is that you will have some of these thematic-based funds, which will be around for a long time, and they'll come in and out of fashion. And we'll have some that will simply go away and they'll go to the junk tip um, because they weren't built on a sound idea. And that's the thing I think investors need to be conscious of, right, is two risks there really. Is the thematic likely to be a long-term trend? And that's hard to pick, you know. Um, 
skinny jeans have been around for a really long time. But I think there was a few attempts for bell bottoms to come back in those in that interim. But at the same time, the underlying index is also really important. You know, that the marketing on the thematics can be really alluring. And surely they have also done their due diligence and they likely they think that there is value there. But you're so right that a lot of people may, they should, but may not consider what am I actually buying? I might be buying an art ETF, but what is in it? I might be buying a consumer staple ETF, but what's underlying within it? So again, this is always so boring, but the PDS and actually understanding what you're buying. I mean, you wouldn't buy a box of clothing marked trendy and go, I'm not going to look inside. I don't even know if it's my size. You know, is it women's or men's clothing? Who cares? I'm going to buy it and I'll just see what happens. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm going to keep that analogy, Justin. I love it. I'm curious though, on the subject of thematics, if it was 15 years ago that we were having this discussion, we might've brought up ESG as a thematic investment. I feel as if times have changed a little bit. It feels as if now it's an embedded risk. You hear superannuation funds talking about it. You hear even institutional investors like Vanguard thinking about how they steward funds and what their role is in advocating for climate responsibility. But as an analyst, you have a very different view on this. So is there long-term value in ESG and why? That's a really good question. Um, and a couple of points that I would make on that one. ESG is a long-term trend and I don't think it's just a standalone theme. It's becoming embedded in the investment landscape, and I think that's where it's different. So what we're finding is companies need to address ESG issues. Originally, for a lot of it, it was governance, so having independent directors on a board for argument's sake, those sorts of practices were seen as important. And then sort of it has evolved from a number of people who were uncomfortable uh, owning tobacco stocks because of the health risks involved and the marketing practices that have been exhibited. And then it, that evolved to, well, cluster munitions are a bad thing, so we don't want to support that. So companies that make those things should be uh, excluded. So we've gone over time from understanding that some of these things are important to structuring investments to take into account some of these issues to moving to a stage now where people say, well, we need to be a little bit more dynamic in terms of how we think about that because there's long-term risks. Over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of discussion about coal and whether you should buy coal stocks. And one of the issues is coal power stations and coal mines are seen potentially to be stranded assets. So that is a risk. So a stranded asset is basically an asset that one day has no value even though someone might have invested hundreds of millions of dollars within it. Because what you'll find is with coal overall is that at some stage, its use will diminish rapidly. It will no longer be used to fire power generations to give us electricity. And to build these plants are, is horrendously expensive. And you build them with a 30 or 40 year life. So no one's in Australia would advocate, well, I've got to be careful about how I say this, but the thing is, if you go, but if you go in 
today and say, I want to build a coal-fired power station, private enterprise won't do it because they think that it won't have a 40-year life and it needs to have a 40-year life to be worth the initial investment. So this is where it's becoming a very current topic in terms of what people want to invest in and what the conversation is and the direction that companies are looking for from governments overall. So the New South Wales government's been very clear in trying to set some guidelines. But the issue is, as well, is you can't suddenly switch from coal to green 100%. So that's a challenge as well that companies need to manage and mitigate. And there's a lot of different views that are out there. There's a lot of different views overall uh, in terms of how we deal with some of these issues. And I wouldn't pretend to be an expert. But what this means is this whole discussion around ESG. So this is environment in terms of coal. Governance in terms of how um, things are managed really well. I mean, we're seeing it at the moment in terms of um, you know how independent and how much information do board of directors have about the crown and star with what was going on in you know their casinos and those sorts of issues. You know that they're all part of the ESG issues. We've got the social issues as well about how companies treat gender gap and gender pay issues, etc. You know that's a, that's a very big social issue that was never discussed 25 years ago. But now is a real core issue that people are looking to boards to address and address in a positive manner. So this is where ESG is, you know, whatever your views might be, is not just a thematic that will be gone. If it's here to stay, the question becomes in what form is it here to stay and how does it affect companies overall? It just becomes a normal thing that, okay, we have to address this like an accounting standard. Yeah. There's certain ways we need to represent things and that just needs to be done. Or does it have a, a, a bigger impact that leads to government regulation that will tell you there's certain things that must be done? It's a very interesting topic. It is. And I think you're right. The institutional aspect is potentially the, the biggest clue to this being something, and it may change forms, but likely ESG will just become part of, you know, it'll just be a section in your investor report. It will be something that boards consider the form in which, you know, the gender pay gap may not have been the primary issue 15 years ago, but it is now. And so is uh, domestic violence leave and the way in which companies sort of uh, frame and think about the way in which they support their employees through those social issues. But it's difficult for thematic investors though, because if you're looking for these clues as to whether the thematic that you're interested in investing in is going to become a long-term embedded trend, you kind of need to have a crystal ball because we can say this with confidence now about ESG because you look at government regulation, you look at the things boards are considering, uh, the ways in which investor annual reports are factoring in ESG and how are we going to plan for net zero, whatever they actually then frame up their environmental and social and governance in their reports. But that's almost impossible to do for thematic investing if you're investing in, let's say, battery technology as a particular. So that there's a risk there that investors need to be conscious of that just because it's a thematic does not necessarily mean that it's not going to go out of fashion like bell bottoms, which are actually having a comeback. So <laughs> who knows? <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. But you're right about that in terms of when you pick a a very narrowly defined theme that even might be uh, 
something that's important. And so battery technology is really going to have a, a place to play at some stage. But the way that index might be built and the underlying companies they have they might have may not be successful within that. And we might find there's new technology created by people that aren't part of that index or companies not, not part of the business that index that are very successful. Uh, it could, you know, for argument's sake, come from the car manufacturers, not from the battery technologists. And that could that could mean that you had a good idea, but it, but it came to fruition in a very different place from where you decide to put your money. And that's where why we always say that the more diversified you are and the more you're spreading uh, your investment risk, then the more chance you have to have better outcomes overall. And across, you know, the, there's so many different types of risk, whether it's industry or country exposure, technology type, uh, that can be a really helpful exercise, especially if you're already invested, is just to put all of your holdings on a page and just have a think about, okay, how heavily am I exposed to blah? How heavily, you know, how much of my holdings are in Australia, for example? And then have a think about the broader context of the risk. Well, Justin, a lot of our community members are millennials and Gen Z, although we have a widespread at Self Wealth. But I would love in all your years as an analyst and all your experience, um, what are your thoughts for investors going into this or experiencing this period of volatility? Look, that's a good question. I have a couple of thoughts. What uh, is ask yourself the question, how comfortable are you getting up the next morning and finding your portfolio down 20%? Can you handle that? And look at the portfolio you have and is it possible that might happen? Because if you can't handle some of this volatility, which could, which has occurred and may continue to occur, then you need to ask yourself how you're investing because you don't want to be worried or it, you don't want this to consume you with worry. That's That's not what it's meant to do. So that's the first thing. Ask yourself how much risk or volatility you can handle. And I think the second thing is ask yourself what are you what are you investing for? You know, one of our analysts in the US put it really well is, is that most investments, it's good if it's a bit boring for the long term. And if you want to play around with some things, make sure it's a defined amount and that if you lose half of it or more, you're comfortable with it. And don't think of it like going to the casino. And that I could double my money, I could triple my money, and I could do this really quick um, because oftentimes it's the reverse that can happen. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a dad story, that, you know, as, as I tell my kids, but patience is an amazing virtue to have and investments in well-diversified portfolios and patience can heal a lot of wounds and cover up a lot of red. So over time, that red becomes green. And so I would, I would think that, you know, to be a good investor, you need to be able to understand what your limits are and to be patient. It's such good advice, Justin. Very difficult to put in practice, I will say, as the, apparently the instant gratification generation. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think it's fantastic advice. Be patient and think about what's this portfolio going to look like in five years. I might be opening it up to a sea of red today but the market might be different in five years. And equally, it's a good time to reflect on, are you potentially in a portfolio that reflects your risk? Or do you maybe need to tone it down or dial it up 
as the case may be. Probably dial it down for most investors, I would say. I think most of us are, it, you know, <laughs> quite confident when things are going well. But it's a good, good time to pause and reflect and practice virtues like patience. Justin, thank you so much for joining us on Big Swinging Stocks. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I was hoping there would be more dad jokes, but I'm willing to <laughs> accept that the fashion analogy was pretty funny. It's pretty funny. It's pretty good. Thanks very much, Alex. It's, uh, it was great to be here and it was a very enjoyable conversation. 